It's an ancient town at the junction of the Jordan River Valley and the Jezreel Valley. Here, the bodies of King Saul and three of his sons were hung by the Philistines after losing the Battle of Gilboa. Now, why is this town so well preserved, even after an earthquake? What lessons can you and I learn? Coming up, we'll walk the streets of an ancient Roman town, and I promise you an unforgettable visit on the land and the book. Welcome to the world's only broadcast that takes you to the Holy Land and back in just one hour. Our guide is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, many people wonder, how do I share the gospel with my Jewish friend? Pretty good question. And that question, I think, recognizes the need that there is for a sensitive approach to sharing with Jewish people. You know, you're absolutely right, John, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help answer the question. Uh, They put together a series of helpful articles on how you can share the good news with Jewish people around you. Uh, You'll learn things about Jewish cultural sensitivities, how anti-Semitism affects Jewish evangelism, the importance of Messianic prophecy, and more. Now, to access the articles, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo button there, and sign up. You'll receive the articles to equip you with practical ways to share the good news with Jewish people around you or online. Again, click on the Moody Radio icon at lifeinmessiah.org. Let's swing our focus now toward current events in the Middle East region. Political fissures within Israel are starting to reemerge. And this time, they're focused on the efforts to defeat Hamas and secure the release of the hostages. What's causing the rift and how might it all end, Charlie? There are a number of intersecting issues. Uh, One is the military goals and the political goals don't align. You know, the original goal was to defeat Hamas, but then pressure mounted to get the hostages released, and that political pressure is being felt by the government. As a result, Israel can't move forward militarily with the same aggressiveness lest the hostages get caught in the crossfire. Hamas knows this. They're using the hostages as a result as human shields. But the more slowly the military moves, the more Israel loses momentum while their casualty figures continue to mount. The demands for a ceasefire and for ending the war while allowing Hamas to remain in power are growing within Israel and around the world. The emergency government and war cabinet could be nearing a breaking point as Benny Gantz and his National Unity Party look at leaving the emergency government. The other member of Gantz's party who is also on the war cabinet Gadi Eisenkot has said the absolute defeat of Hamas is unrealistic. He also said new elections are needed within months to regain public trust. Adding to the pressure in Israel, the U.S., Egypt, Qatar are pushing a plan to end the war, free the hostages, and begin discussions on forming a Palestinian state. In many ways, the proposal sounds attractive. All hostages would be released within 90 days, while Israel would also release hundreds of Palestinian security prisoners— pull out of Gaza cities, allow freedom of movement in Gaza, and double the amount of aid being allowed in. This would then be followed by talks for a permanent ceasefire, normalization of diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and a new peace process leading to a Palestinian state. Now, the real problem is what's not being said. What happens to Hamas? What will the borders be for that future Palestinian state? And what's to guarantee that Israel won't be attacked again down the road? If Hamas were part of a Palestinian state, any short-term peace would be followed by an even greater threat in the future. At a time when Israel needs to come together to speak with a unified voice, the political divisions are becoming more pronounced. It's hard to imagine how the current government can continue much longer without holding national elections. 
Story number two, details continue to emerge on the extent of Hamas's military preparations for that October 7 attack. What do we know? And uh, what impact is that having on Israel's conflict with Palestinians in the West Bank and with Hezbollah in Lebanon? You know, the numbers, John, are staggering. Uh, The tunnel system built under Gaza extended for at least 350 miles with 5,700 separate entry shafts. And to put that in perspective, the entire Gaza Strip is only 141 square miles, which is exactly half the size of the city of Chicago. And Chicago's entire L, you know, its mass transit rail system, only has 224 miles of track and only 11 of those are underground. So Gaza's half the size, but with 20 times the distance in underground tunnels. Now, Israel was surprised by the extent of the tunnel system and by the meticulous planning, and that's caused them to look more closely at other Palestinian towns that border Israel in the West Bank area. Residents in several places have reported hearing digging sounds under their houses for years. The government's now taking those concerns more seriously. Uh, the same is true on the border with Lebanon. Israel's pushing to have Hezbollah move its forces north of the Latani River because they believe Hezbollah was planning similar attacks against Israeli civilians there in the north. In one sense, Hamas's attack did wake Israel up to a threat that they weren't taking seriously enough, hmm. and that might have helped prevent an even more serious attack from taking place in the future. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book, where we're looking at current events from the Middle East. As you said earlier, the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar, along with Europe and the U.N., are pressuring Israel to accept a two-state solution to resolve the conflict with the Palestinians. Why is Prime Minister Netanyahu so reluctant to accept a Palestinian state? You know, someone quipped, it's really about upcoming elections, both in Israel and in the United States, with both Biden and Netanyahu speaking to their supporters. You know, President Biden reported on a phone call he had with Netanyahu, and he said Netanyahu told him he isn't ruling out a Palestinian state. Netanyahu then issued a press release saying he hasn't changed his position. At the Davos conference in Switzerland, Secretary of State Blinken said Israel can't achieve genuine security without a pathway to a Palestinian state. And the EU's foreign policy chief was even more blunt, saying a Palestinian state may need to be imposed on Israel from the outside. But even apart from election rhetoric, why are Netanyahu and others in Israel so reluctant? Well, Israeli President Herzog stated the obvious at Davos when he said, quote, no Israeli in the right mind is even thinking about the peace process right now. The events of October 7 caused most Israelis to lose what little trust they might have had in the idea of a Palestinian state. And a recent poll shows why they're so reluctant. Over 90% of the Palestinians surveyed believe Hamas did not commit atrocities seen on the very videos that were taken by their own fighters. And a senior Hamas official in Qatar said on Wednesday that recognition of Israel is a red line, and they remain committed to a state of Palestine from the river to the sea, meaning wiping out Israel. Now, until the Palestinians are willing to come to terms with reality, most Israelis have serious doubts about allowing a Palestinian state on their border. Well, the discovery of an extremely rare 2,550-year-old coin during a highway expansion project in Israel has helped shed new light on the arrival of money into the Holy Land. What have archaeologists learned from this intriguing find, and can we cash in on their discovery? I found this really fascinating, John. First, the coin was minted outside Israel during the Persian period, and it dates to the time when coins were just starting to be used in the uh, ancient Near East. Before that, people weighed pieces of silver or gold on a scale to pay for the items they were buying. 
Now, the second thing I found fascinating, this coin was intentionally cut in two, with the half discovered being reused in a secondary way as a one-shekel weight. An Egyptian sign for the word shekel was inscribed on the piece, along with a single stroke to show it represented one shekel. So coins were just starting to circulate, but the owner felt a better use for the coin was to turn it back into a one-shekel weight to be used with the old system. Yeah, much like today, some people then were slow to adopt to new technology. So the owner of this coin thought a more pragmatic way to use this newfangled invention called money was to repurpose it back into being a weight. Now, this discovery illustrates the reality that human response to innovation isn't always enthusiastic or immediate. Well, a new COVID treatment developed in Israel is posed to revolutionize the world's response to pandemics. Tell us about this medical innovation from Amazing Israel. One of the major complications with COVID happens when a person's own immune system overreacts to the virus. You know, it's called a, a cytokine storm. Uh, this new treatment by a company called 101 Therapeutics stops the body's overreaction and also eliminates the virus reservoir, preventing other long-term complications. And since it's not a vaccine, it doesn't need to be reworked every time there's a new mutation or variant of COVID. Uh, the scientists at 101 Therapeutics believe this new approach could play a role in shaping the treatment of future infectious diseases beyond COVID. The company is getting ready to start phase three trials and to receive emergency use authorization in India, which will pave the way for global availability. Now, John, when this happens, just remember this new approach all began in amazing Israel. Charlie, I want to circle back to your comment that 90% of Palestinians polled do not believe that Hamas committed atrocities against Israelis, despite seeing actual video footage. So then which is true? Uh, the videos they believe are false and manufactured, or B, they believe that despite what they're seeing, it was okay and justified? Uh, and the answer is uh, they didn't see the videos. Arab media, the uh, television stations, Al Jazeera, uh, the newspapers didn't publish those videos, didn't broadcast those videos on the uh, stations and the, uh, the media that they use. So in, in reality, uh, the people don't know about it. They just don't accept it as a result. Okay. In fact, even, it gets even worse, John. Uh, 97% in the West Bank uh, didn't believe the videos were real. It's actually less in Gaza. They saw some of it firsthand, but in the West Bank, uh, they just totally disbelieved it. Wow. Well, lots to pray for as that drama unfolds, and we're looking forward to a broadcast today that I think you'll find fascinating, as in just a moment, you and I are walking the streets of Beit Shan. Charlie, you and I spent some time there, and we're going to bring back this report from Israel. You're going to feel like you're actually there in this ancient town. What a sight it's going to be. So keep it right here on The Land and the Book, if you would, and do us another favor, would you? Let a friend know about the broadcast and the podcast. You'll find it at thelandandthebook.org. The Bible does not lack for sad stories, people who threw away their lives in pursuit of the wrong things. But few of those tales are as tragic as the one we're about to tell. Hey, welcome to segment two of The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, our guide and friend. I'm John Geiger, and once again, we've left our studio to bring you a conversation from Israel. Well, the Bible is filled with details, some of which we miss or maybe ignore. But those details, when properly understood, 
paint a much more detailed picture of what has really actually unfolded. Charlie Dyer, what should we know? What should all of that say to us as we do our own personal Bible study, these details? Well, I think it reminds us that the details were included for a purpose. Uh, they're not just filler. God gave them to help us learn uh, insights into the people, their character, decisions they made right or wrong, and uh, translate that into how we ought to live in a way that pleases God and what we ought to be avoiding and that doesn't please Him. Charlie, I have never traveled to Italy, but the streets that we are walking today conjure up images of what ancient Rome feels to me like it must have looked like. What is this place, and why do I feel the way I do? We're so far away from Rome. Yeah, this is Beit Shan, uh, which is in northern Israel. And in fact, one of our guests just said to me as we were coming in here, he said, I've been to Rome. This looks just like Rome. Uh, and what we're seeing is lots of Roman architecture, Roman design, uh, Roman layout for the city itself. But it reminds us Rome ruled the Mediterranean. Uh, and their footprint, their artistic design is found everywhere, including in the land of Israel. Weather-wise, it's nearly 100 degrees today. Does it often get this hot here at Beit Shan? And how do we account for the temperatures? It's not like we're in a desert or next to the Dead Sea. Yeah, well, it's below sea level where we are right now. The Sea of Galilee north of us was 600 feet below sea level. So we're a little lower than that. So we're in a tropical climate. And of course, in uh, the summer months, it gets hot here. I love it. The uh, locals want to make this a major tourist attraction. But for much of the year, it's just too hot for the average tourist, at least to spend much time here. Well, the columns and building structures are remarkably preserved, but oddly toppled over. What can account for this scattering that we see? A major earthquake, 749 A.D. Uh, this city, which was in decline a bit, but it, it was still standing, and suddenly the foundations of the city shook. Every column just toppled over. The buildings just collapsed. The capitals on top that were holding the roofs up fell over, bringing the roofs down with them. It was such a massive and major destruction that the people who were here couldn't even begin to rebuild. They literally left the ruins as they were, moved a short distance away, and started over again. Well, that leads to our next question. When was this place excavated? I mean, how did people begin to suspect that there was something as magnificent as these ruins buried here? You know, it's amazing, John. My first trip here in 1982, you could see the tell, the, the little hill, the artificial hill that we knew was Old Testament Beit Shan, and you could see the ruins of the theater. Not all that we see today, but uh, the ruins of the theater were here. Uh, between the theater and the tell, the, the hill, there was nothing. It was just a flat field. Uh, some trees growing. So everything we've seen has been excavated uh, since 1982. How does that give you uh, a sense of uh, wonderment yourself? You know, 40 plus years of tours here to see a site like this come from seemingly nowhere. Oh, it's absolutely amazing to me, John. This reminds me of Pompeii. It reminds me of some of the other major spots like that because you just don't expect to find a complete Roman city in this land. And yet here it is just piece by piece being uncovered. Well, how important a town would Beit Shan have been in the days of King Saul? Uh, in the days of King Saul, it was a significant town, uh, mainly because there was an east-west crossing point. The, the Jordan River had three major places you could cross it. Uh, the northernmost was Beit Shan, and then halfway down was the Adam crossing point. At the very southern end was Jericho, but they were the main places you crossed the Jordan River. So this controlled all the traffic from uh, the King's Highway over in what's today Jordan, and through the Jezreel Valley to get to Akko or to get to Haifa to get to the Mediterranean. Well, this place, Beit Shan, is where we're at today here on The Land and the Book, by the way. Our broadcast coming to you from Israel, the north of Israel, as Charlie Dyer has reminded us. It is associated with a battle that took place a 15-minute bus ride away. Uh, what do we need to know about that battle? 
Well, sadly, we need to know it's the place where Saul met his end. Having disobeyed God, having gotten angry, having been rejected by God, Saul tries to stop the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were just across the valley at the Hill of Moray. The battle went terribly uh, wrong for Saul. He and his sons ended up being killed. The next day when the Philistines came back to uh, scavenge and, and search through everything, they found Saul's body, the bodies of his sons, and they cut off his head, uh, stripped off his armor, and then carried those headless torsos of Saul and his sons here to Bethshan and hung them on the walls of Bethshan. Uh, it's hard to imagine what the bloated bodies would have been like sitting out in that sun and that heat during the day, uh, but it was their way of showing their victory over Israel. Well, the horrible ending of this battle uh, should not have been a surprise to anyone, at least as we read the Bible. We know of the night before Saul is consulting a witch at a place called Endor. What do we know about Endor and the witch and that whole uh, conversation? And most people who don't know the Bible or geography don't get it. Actually, Endor was on the other side of the Philistine lines. Saul had to walk for hours to get behind the Philistine lines to reach Endor. Uh, after the encounter, he's, his strength is gone, but he still has to walk all the way back to his own lines. It took him most of the night to get from his, his own army to Endor and back. By the next morning, when the battle's ready to begin, he's exhausted physically, he's exhausted spiritually, he's exhausted emotionally, he's in no condition to lead his army, and of course the results speak for themselves. You know, we look back, and it's easy to judge Saul, but if he would walk for hours at an all-night vigil, so to speak, to consult a witch, why not an all-night prayer meeting before the Lord? Well, and that's the key. Saul was not a spiritual man. Even though the Spirit of God came on him to provide enablement, you find Saul being motivated by fear. Uh, he doesn't wait the seven days for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. Uh, you find him motivated by greed. When God sends him to destroy the Amalekites, he brings the best back. And you find him motivated by jealousy, uh, the fact that David fought the battle he should have fought and beat Goliath. Uh, Saul basically says, they're giving David 10,000, me only 1,000. What can he have but the kingdom? Uh, Saul was seeing David as a, as a rival, a threat to his throne. So he's always motivated by these, these human passions. But never once do you find him stopping and saying, but what does God want? Still, this all-night march to uh, consult a witch, what was he hoping for? Uh, you know, good news to buoy his spirits? I mean, in a best-case scenario, what would he have gotten out of that? You know, it's hard to tell, but psychologically, I almost think he wanted to find Samuel. Samuel was his one connection back to the time when mm. he was still God's man. And he was trying to get in touch with Samuel and maybe gain some strength. I, I think the witch of Endor may have been fake. Because when you read the account, she's as surprised as anybody is when Samuel shows up. <laughs> uh, I don't think she had that ability. God sent Samuel, and it wasn't the message Saul wanted to hear. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We have left our studios. We're at a, a marvelous place uh, here in Israel called Beit Shan, an Old Testament city. Well, you know, people of our refined culture, quote-unquote, ask, why was it necessary to behead Saul and Jonathan, his son? You know, you know, fasten their bodies to the wall? Why such barbaric behavior? I think the way we have to look at that is that that was a common practice throughout that culture in those days. For example, David, once he killed Goliath, he beheaded him and took the skull back to Jerusalem as a trophy. When the Assyrians captured people or took people, they put on the walls of their palaces showing coming back with a head count meaning these soldiers are carrying the human heads that they would count up. Uh, that was their way of trying to uh, not only show how many were killed, but their superiority. We chopped them off and, and defeated them. So uh, the Philistines wanted some trophy on that wall to say, we got it, 
And this is the guy who tried to stop us. Is it too far a reach to look at what ISIS is doing, beheading such a big part of their end game with their captives? Is that just kind of going back to those roots? I think it is. In fact, I think that's why to truly understand ISIS, we need to go back and recognize what the Bible has in the Old Testament and in the Assyrians. Uh, That is just the way of showing victory and superiority. Well, let's put ourselves in the sandals of the victorious Philistines. They march by those walls. They see the headless, bloated bodies of Saul and Jonathan flies buzzing around them. What are they thinking? Uh, They're thinking, we did it. We've conquered Israel. We actually divided Israel in half. By taking the Jezreel Valley all the way down to Bethshan, they had split Galilee from the rest of Israel, very similar to the tactic Israel used when they came into the land the first time further south. But their victory, as excited as they were, was short-lived because Saul's son was put in charge over in the other side of the Jordan River, and uh, his army began clawing back uh, some of the area in the Jezreel Valley. So uh, the Philistines didn't stay here too long uh, until they lost some of the territory. But at least for that moment, they saw themselves as the victors. You know, it wasn't just Saul who lost his life in this battle, Jonathan, his son, as well. What would you say to readers, Bible readers, who feel a sense of injustice that Saul and Jonathan both died the same way? I mean, Jonathan was not the one who consulted the witch of Endor. Jonathan was not the one who repeatedly disobeyed the Lord. Jonathan was David's protector and best friend. Why would God allow Jonathan to endure such evil, indignity, injustice by our scales. Yeah, and I think we have to say at some times, the sins of the parents end up being experienced by their children. You know, if somebody today, drunk driver, and crashes, the child experiences the effects if they're in the car. Uh, That often happens, it shows how awful sin is, that it affects not just the person who's sinning, but even those around them. But you're right, Jonathan was innocent. Uh, Jonathan was the one that, uh, his heart was knit with David. He knew David was to be king. But he was still the son of Saul. He was still the loyal son. And sadly, he got infected with the judgment that God brought on Saul. You know, I I go back to where we started the conversation. This is a story of someone who was pursuing the wrong things. And look what it cost him, and look what it cost his innocent son. That ought to shout at us from the pages of Scripture, seems to me. I think so. I think that's why these stories were included in the Bible. It's a reminder to us that uh, we're not just a law unto ourselves. Things just don't affect us. Sin isn't just an innocent thing. The sin that we commit impacts everybody that we come across, everybody we touch, everybody in our family in one way or another. And uh, sadly for Saul, it was catastrophic for his family. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Charlie, describe the, uh, the stones around us, where we're at, for somebody just joining this conversation. Uh, John, we are in the theater at Bayshon. In fact, we're in the vomitoria right now. We're standing, <laughs> which comes from Latin. It was the exit. The exit out of the theater. Uh, This theater is amazing. It's three stories tall. Uh, The first story is kind of preserved with the original cladding. The second is still in ruins. The third had actually collapsed in the earthquake. But the theater would have held thousands. And it gives an impression of how large this town really was. It truly was an amazing work of Roman engineering. Well, the earthquake that destroyed this place reminds us of the biblical warnings that in the end times, there will be, among other things, many more earthquakes. People often ask, uh, how close are we to those end times? Uh, I wish I could set dates. I can't, though, because uh, no one knows the day or the hour. However, uh, when you look at some of the passages in the Bible, the alignment of nations, uh, like uh, Ezekiel 38, 39, with Russia and Iran and Turkey, uh, you see nations coming together that God says are going to be part of the end times. Whether that's near or whether God will have a way to delay it, we don't know. But we do know that those events will happen. Israel's back in the land, another key event. Uh, So uh, what I say is 
I don't know the exact date, but I want to be living as if it could happen at any time. We've talked about uh, how the sins of the fathers are sometimes visited on their sons and daughters and other generations. What other lessons can we take away from Saul's tragic ending here? Uh, I think the best lesson that we can take away from Saul's tragic ending is to make sure we keep close accounts with God. It's interesting, just before we were here, we were at uh, Gideon Spring, where Gideon was chosen. He was certainly not voted most likely to succeed uh, in his class. And yet, in spite of his weakness and struggles, in the end, when God told him to do something, he obeyed. In the end, when God told Saul to do something, he always disobeyed. And so the, the real lesson we can carry away is, are we obedient? The old song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. For somebody who wants to learn a bit more about Beit Shan, where would you uh, point them? Well, I love the Christian Traveler's Guide to the Holy Land. We have a little section in there on Beit Shan. Uh, also, in Experiencing the Land of the Book, I have a chapter on visiting Beit Shan. But they can also go to uh, the library, uh, look in a Bible dictionary or Bible encyclopedia. Some great information there. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you, the more they learn about this place and its history, uh, the more fascinating it is and the more they'll understand uh, the life of Saul. Well, what a place this is. And as Charlie has mentioned, uh, described in two of his books, both from Moody Publishers, both at our website on the Books tab at thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Charlie, uh, what kind of questions have we got coming up in segment three? Oh, man, they cover the board. Uh, I love it because they come from all angles, all people. And I love questions. So if, you, if you've asked one, hopefully this will be the day we answer yours. If not, get your question in. All right. And you can always email that question to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. All right. Those questions and Charlie's answers just around the corner. If you have an ounce of curiosity in your soul, this segment is for you. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is about to tackle questions. Who's yours? They come to us via email, and I'll let you know how you can get yours to us uh, later on. Right now, though, people wonder, Charlie, how do I share the gospel with my Jewish friend? It's a good question, and uh, that question recognizes the need, it seems to me, for a sensitive approach to sharing with Jewish people. Yeah, and our friends at Life and Messiah want to help answer that question. They've put together a series of helpful articles on how you can share the good news with Jewish people around you. You'll learn about Jewish cultural sensitivities, how anti-Semitism affects Jewish evangelism, the importance of Messianic prophecy, and more. To access the articles, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. You'll receive the articles to equip you with practical ways to share the good news with Jewish people around you or online. Again, Click on the Moody Radio icon at lifeinmessiah.org. Well, let's dig into our questions for the day, starting with Jay's. He says, I recently had a conversation with somebody who is a Christian, but said that Jesus is not God. Rather, he is the Son of God, and that he never claimed to be God. I refer to the scripture where Jesus says he and the Father are one, but this individual pointed to his wife and said that according to the scripture, they are one in God's eyes, which I know is true. I believe that he is God, Jesus, but uh, are there any verses that claim Jesus is God? This individual only reads the King James, so if you could give me any references, I'd appreciate it. 
Yeah. Okay. So get your pencil and get ready to write down these uh, verses. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think they're important. And I'll try and use the King James. In John chapter 8, verses 56 to 58, Jesus said to the people, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, thou art not yet 50 years old and hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, verily, verily, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now there's two things there. First, Jesus said he existed before Abraham. And second, his use of the I am goes back to God's message to Moses in Exodus 3, where God told Moses to tell Israel that I am is the one sending him. It's God's personal name. So Jesus is claiming preexistence and the name of God. The second passage, write down Philippians 2, verses 5 to 7. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. What he's saying there is prior to his incarnation, Jesus was in the form of God and was equal with God. That's claiming deity. Third, John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then a few verses later, we're told that he made all things. And then later, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that makes it clear that the word is referring to Jesus. And it's saying that he was God and that he was responsible for creating everything. It's hard to have a more complete picture of the deity of Jesus than that. But I've got more. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, In Jesus dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is, everything that's true of deity dwells in Jesus himself. And finally, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul's speaking to the elders of Ephesus, and he says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Well, God the Father doesn't have a physical body or blood. Jesus does. And Paul says it was God who purchased us with his blood. That's actually saying Jesus is God. Great question and a great answer. Thank you, Charlie. Jackie has a question about John 7, where Jesus told his brothers he wasn't going to the festival. But then in verse 14, he does go. Did Jesus mean he wasn't going with his brothers or that he wasn't going immediately? I know Jesus didn't lie, but it sure looks like a lie. Can you shed any light on this? Yeah, and I love those kind of questions. I think in context, Jesus is saying that he wasn't going to the festival with his brothers. You know, not that he wasn't going to go at all and then changed his mind or, or lied to them. You know, they didn't believe his messianic claims. And that's why they were pushing him to travel to Jerusalem with them. You know, in, in essence, they were saying, put up or shut up. I think verses three to four are the heart of their demand. Rather than ministering in the remote Galilee, and in fact, the words they use there, in secret, they were saying, hey, head where the crowds are, gathering in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles and make those claims public. And when Jesus then responded saying, my time is not yet here, He's saying that it's not yet the appropriate moment that God the Father wants him to break off his work in Galilee and head to Jerusalem. Now, he did eventually go, but not until it was the middle of the festival, that seven-day time, and then he stood up in the middle and made his proclamation. So anyway, when Jesus said to his brothers, go to the feast yourselves, I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come, I don't believe he's lying. He's simply saying the timing in God's plan for him to go didn't coincide with the plans his unbelieving brothers had for him. I love all these questions, and yours is welcome, too. If you want to send us an email, we're glad to tackle it. The Land and the Book at moody.edu is where you address that question. I love the transparency here in Esther's comment. She says, I'm having a faith crisis. I need your help. I accepted Christ many years ago, asked Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, and believed that he conquered death through his resurrection. 
I've heard of believers who have experienced complete and immediate transformation, but it has not been this way for me. I began smoking when I was a teenager, and though I have greatly reduced smoking, I still continue to smoke. I've tried every possible method there is, but have had no success. I know there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. It's a gift of God. But I greatly fear that my partial obedience prevents me from entering the kingdom of God. Do you believe smoking is a sin, and is this preventing my salvation? Well, let me start by saying it sounds like you're genuinely saved. Uh, You believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for your sin. You turn to him to ask for forgiveness. And 1 John 5, 11 to 13 is God's promise to you. He says there, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Now, that's where you got to start. Now, about the smoking. Smoking is addictive, and it's incredibly hard to break that habit. I know because my dad struggled with it for years, even after he came to faith in Christ. Eventually, God brought a crisis point in his life, which caused him to quit smoking, but he struggled for years, and he was still a firm believer in Jesus at the time. Now, there have been many good and godly people who smoke or who struggle with other issues, so here's my advice then as a result of all that. First, thank God that he saved you just as you are. You want to grow closer to him through prayer, through reading his word, Keep sharing your struggle with him. Keep asking him to help you. But remember, sometimes he doesn't respond as we might want or in the timing that we might like. Focus instead on the areas where you do see him working in your life. Focus less on your struggle with smoking and more on reading your Bible and going to the Lord in prayer. And on the practical side, keep doing those things you can do to help cut down on smoking, like nicotine patches. You know, there are a number of aids that can help, at least to some extent. But don't berate yourself if you can't stop completely. Uh, Just try and remain as healthy as you can and try and draw as close to God as you can and let him take care of the rest. Brad says, in Sunday school, our teacher stated that the Jews under Roman rule were allowed to stone people to death, but they could not crucify anyone. They took Jesus to Pilate because they didn't just want to stone him. They wanted the ultimate humiliating death for him. I thought I remember hearing you say that Jews were not allowed to carry out any capital punishment. Can you provide me with any reference backing the no capital punishment allowed argument? I can. And first, your memory is right. I believe that the Jews were not allowed to carry on capital punishment. Uh, The first verse, though, is the John 18, 31. When the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, Pilate told him, look, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But they responded by saying, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. It's not just that they wanted a humiliating death for Jesus. They said they weren't permitted to put anyone to death. Now, there are some exceptions in the New Testament. You know, they stoned Stephen. Uh, That was a mob mentality, though, and the Romans could have responded very harshly to that. Uh, The second is in John 8. Remember, there's a question on uh, the woman taken in adultery, uh, whether it should even be in the text. I believe it should be. But they said there that the woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Interestingly, that the man wasn't caught as well. But they wanted to know if he could put him to death. Uh, You know, that's what Moses' law said. But the verses make it very clear they were trying to trick him. They were using it as a trap. If Jesus said he agreed with the law of Moses, they would have gone to the Roman authorities and said Jesus was promoting capital punishment without Roman permission. If Jesus said, no, you got to follow Roman law, then they planned to go to the people and say, hey, he's not following God's law. So they had no intention of putting her to death. They were really trying to trap Jesus. Audrey writes, in the law, the Lord tells Israelites not to light a fire on the Sabbath day. Does that mean they had to be cold and not have a fire to warm up if it was cold outside or Was there a different reason? 
Well, that commandment, actually, you have to look at the larger context. In verse 2 of Exodus 35, God says, For six days works to be done. The seventh is a holy day. It's a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Uh, whoever does work is going to be put to death. So the focus is not performing manual activities. It's a prohibition against lighting a fire on the Sabbath in terms of doing work. Now, I see primarily the cooking and meal preparation being the issue there. Two other key points here. They could light a fire the day before the Sabbath and then let it burn and go out. They didn't put it out. And uh, frankly, if they lit a fire on Friday, it burned into Friday night, and then Saturday night they could light a fire again. They didn't go very long without a fire, and most of the time their fire was used, though, for cooking, uh, not for anything else. Thank you, Charlie. Always a, a wide array of questions that we get here, and I appreciate your digging into every one of them. If you've got a question for us, email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional is next. I don't know about you, but I love to look at my weather app. Or is it apps? Actually, I've got several on my phone. I have one on the uh, TV, and I'm always staring at the weather. Welcome back to the land of the book. I'm John Geiger. Charlie, are you a bit of a, a weather junkie? I am a weather junkie. I've got uh, the same number of apps on mine. In fact, I have the, <laughs> the, the forecast sitting here right on my computer as well. So uh, I love looking at the weather. Well, I, I can't think of anything, though, more uh, destructive or more deadly than a forecast of drought. And yet that's the focus of your devotional coming up? That is the focus. And we're going to Deuteronomy 28 after we pause and listen to this testimony from a Holy Land traveler. I'm Josiah Sawyer, and uh, the, the trip here was very authentic because the land in the book was exactly what I came for, and that's what I got. Connecting the land with the book just made my faith deeper and made me understand that Jesus truly is God, and he is man, and that came through loud and clear to me. And the one thing that really impressed me was when I learned that in Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, which was Jesus's stomping grounds, and they didn't believe him. And no one was healed there. But those who were healed showed faith at first. And, and Jesus knew that they had deep faith in him. And that impressed me very much. Well, I'm glad we're back in our continuing devotional series, Weather Bulletins. But I sure don't like droughts, Charlie. I know, John. And that's why today's Weather Bulletin from the Bible starts with a truism about rainfall in Israel. Now, I taught this to my students, and I also share it with those on tours. Now, here it goes. Rainfall in Israel increases as you move west, north, or to a higher elevation. And on the flip side, rainfall decreases as you move south, east, or to a lower elevation. It rains more as you head toward the Mediterranean, toward Galilee, or toward the top of Mount Carmel or Mount Hermon. And it rains less as you head toward the Jordan Valley or the Negev or down to the Dead Sea. Now, those statements are generally true, but there's another truth about rainfall in Israel. It's the reality that total rainfall can vary greatly from year to year. Israel has a Mediterranean-type climate, which means, generally, it experiences rain only in the late fall, winter, and spring. 
Israel also sits on the boundary between the moisture from the Mediterranean to the west and dry desert to the south and east. That's what makes the rainfall in any given year so very unpredictable. The Promised Land is in an area of marginal, unpredictable rainfall. A fellow named Jim Monson called it God's testing ground of faith. The nation was dependent on God to supply the water that was essential for life. And we talked about this a few weeks ago as we looked at rain. But today we're going to look at the other side of the coin. What happened when Israel didn't obey God? God provided the answer in Deuteronomy 28 before the people ever entered the land. Among the list of curses for disobedience, Moses wrote, The Lord will strike you with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. A person can live for up to three months without food, but he or she can only survive about three days without water. That's why water is connected so strongly to life and to God in the Bible. Jesus talked about living or running water in his conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. And Jeremiah compared God to a spring of living or running water in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Perhaps that's why God used drought as a way to grab people's attention and turn them from their wayward path. On a number of occasions, God used a physical drought to encourage his people to turn back to him. In 1 Kings 17, God sent Elijah to announce, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. The next three and a half years saw the land go through an extended drought. Springs and brooks dried up, crops failed, and even the grass needed to feed cattle and sheep disappeared. Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel ended with the people turning back to God and killing the false prophets, and with God then sending rain. In the days of Jeremiah, God also brought a major drought on the people of Judah. Though not as well known as the drought in the days of Elijah, Jeremiah captures the fear and desperation experienced by those living in Judah and Jerusalem at the time. Here's how he describes it in chapter 14. This is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, her cities languish, they wail for the land, and a cry goes up from Jerusalem. The nobles send their servants for water. They go to the cisterns, but find no water. They return with their jars unfilled, dismayed and despairing. They cover their heads. The ground is cracked because there is no rain in the land. The farmers are dismayed and cover their heads. The interchange between God, Jeremiah, and the people in that chapter is heart-wrenching. The people seem to realize the drought is God's judgment as they cry out to him, O Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, O Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. The words spoken by the people sound right on target. Unfortunately, God peered into their hearts and saw they were unchanged. You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding, so I will lay hands on you and destroy you. I can no longer show compassion. I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. I will bring bereavement and destruction on my people, for they have not changed their ways. God did eventually lift the drought but it was followed by the arrival of the Babylonians and the destruction of Jerusalem. 
Even after Judah returned from captivity, they continued to struggle with disobedience. God called on them to rebuild the temple when they returned, but the project soon took a back seat to their own plans to build houses, plant fields and vineyards, and settle back into a comfortable life in the land. For 16 years, the temple was nothing more than an abandoned construction site. And then God responded with a drought. The prophet Haggai delivered the stark message from God. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands." Thankfully, the people responded to the message from Haggai and work resumed on the temple. Three and a half years later, it was completed. But what does today's weather forecast have to do with us? After all, the United States is not Israel. So we need to be very careful not to assume that droughts or floods or extreme heat or blizzards are automatically judgments sent by God on our country. Remember, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, God sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. And the series of catastrophic events that came on Job weren't judgments sent on him by God, even though that's what his three friends assumed to be true. There can be multiple reasons for tragedy, so we need to be very careful about assuming that a national disaster or individual tragedy is a direct judgment from God. We simply don't know. But at the same time, we do know our own thoughts and motives. And when we're experiencing those times of testing in our lives, that's a good time to make sure we're right with God. Could he be using the circumstances, our drought experiences, so to speak, to get our attention? Perhaps the best response when facing a time of drought in our own lives is the prayer of David at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just remember, God can even use the personal misfortunes in our lives, those drought experiences, to draw us closer to Him and to help shape us into the image of Christ if we let Him. Hmm. That's a word of encouragement, Charlie. really appreciate that. And maybe you want to hear it again? You can certainly do that as you head to our website, thelandandthebook.org. Hey, if it's been a while since we've heard from you, we would love to connect, love to know how this broadcast is making an impact on your life, whether you listen to it on a radio station or maybe just the podcast, whatever it might be. Email us, will you, at thelandandthebook at moody.edu, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. I want to thank Dan Anderson, our producer, Charlie Dyer, our host, and the management at this station for carving out airtime for us. I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.